WBZ original. <laughs> There's a, a warning here in the rundown. It says, if you talk too much about football, I will edit it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Mark my words. No, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt that you would edit me out. I, I've uh, got it. Although it does say in my contract that only a certain percentage of what I say may be edited out. Okay. Well, have your people talk to my people. <laughs> we hope you are warm on this freezing day. Welcome to Studio BZ. Warm here by the fire. Season 3, Episode mm. 4. I am Paula Evans. Can you hear the fire crackling in the background, crackling everyone? The background. Is this cozy Very little... We've got Huga. Huga. Oh, we should do something on Huga. Are we going to get in trouble for lighting a fire in a trash can here? <laughs> I, I would don't say, know if the management. You know, I don't know. I don't know if there's that within fire code. I'm not sure. We're turning okay. up the heat here, Jonathan is. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we've got a packed show as we always do. I'm back from Kansas City, lovely Kansas City. We'll talk a little bit about my trip there for the uh, Patriots game. You're not going to talk about the great barbecue yet. I am going to talk about the great barbecue. I oh, have to talk God. about the great barbecue. I uh, truly I, something. I, yes. I hate barbecue. Uh, oh, really? See, well, this is just step back. For yeah. a this sounds then. like someone who thinks apple pie is something. Yeah. Let me tell you something, Liam. Uh, love you, you with all due respect. No one wants to hear about someone else's great barbecue feed. <laughs> that's A, that's true. Wait, wait, wait. Aren't there all kinds of – there's a whole food network of people watching other people eat and enjoy food. People love yeah, talking about food. Here's my argument for this why is Boston, I not dislike here. We don't. barbecue. Like I'll eat it if someone hands it to me, but I would never go out for it. It all tastes the same. No. You put no. that sauce on it and no. it makes no matter what's on the plate, it's just no, covered then you in that barbecue. Then you know what sauce, then you haven't had good barbecue. Were you no, sub- I have. I won't name names, but I've had the one in Boston that is supposed to be the most glorious. Mm-hmm. The, and you it's still fine. unimpressed, but that's Boston barbecue. It is barbecue. not something I would go out of. Were my you way subjected to some kind of Palate trauma as a, as a well, young woman. As an Irish Catholic, <laughs> yes, a right. child of eleven children, okay. a lot of oil, yes. Yes. boiled a lot food, of potatoes, yeah. <laughs> and hot dogs and beans on Saturday no. night. All right, we got derailed here. We got derailed. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, what else do we have coming up in the show? It is so packed. Universal Hub. This is a Twitter account that sixty-five thousand people in the Boston area follow. He does local news. He runs a local uh, blog about what's happening in the area, and his name, the man behind it, is Adam. Gaffin. You probably have never heard from him, though you've seen his tweets. We had him in to talk about Universal Hub. And uh, I had a chance to sit down and talk with the first African-American woman to ever serve as president of the Boston City Council. Andrea Campbell, who's a district counselor from Mattapan, uh, is now entering her uh, second year as president of the council. And we kind of dug down into the details of what it's like trying to make uh, profound social and economic changes uh, from a body that really lacks a lot of power, the Boston City Council. So that conversation's coming up. And then we talk to a man whose passion is an issue you will hear more and more about as we approach election year 2020. Should Massachusetts adopt ranked choice voting? Adam Friedman is the executive director of Voter Choice. He makes the case that instead of just voting for one person, you should be able to rank all of the candidates on a ballot, one, two, three, four, and so on, that this has been successfully used in Maine and many, many municipalities around the country, and he would like Massachusetts to adopt it for all elections. Is it possible to rank all of them last? <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of the podcast, or none of the little above. treat, we'll all rank each other. Oh, great. No, I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. <laughs> but we are going to uh, expose our innermost 
dark places. Yes, yes. we're at taking a new we personality have test. Popular that's a, request. People yeah. have been demanding. Right. This. People want to see true. just how screwed up we are. Mm. Yeah. Speak for yourself, there, Liam. Here are, the, here are the instructions, Liam. Okay. okay. We want to know, how was Kansas City briefly? <laughs> and if you talk too much about football, Jonathan, yeah. our producer, will edit it out. Okay, so now and we I've don't been, want to hear about your damn barbecue. I've been told that I can't talk about the barbecue <laughs> nope. or the football, and no. I traveled to Kansas City to watch a football game. <laughs> yeah. So this really we limits want to hear about the I fans. Can, yes, you know, it like interacting we, with the Honestly, fans. we had a blast. I went with Garth Millen, one of our photographers, and our job was not to cover the game, but to cover... All of the spectacle surrounding it, uh, the Kansas Local City, color. the Kansas City Chiefs fans, the Patriots fans who are arriving from all over the country. I mean, we met we met Patriots fans from Britain who had come for the game, and Chiefs fans were a very funny group. They're so polite. They they got that Midwestern kindness and hospitality. When we walked around at the tailgates the day of the game, people were feeding us venison and barbecue this, barbecue that, and um, they were great. But they are really passionate about their team. And I was surprised by, with that Midwestern hospitality, they talked a lot of trash. So we had a, a bunch of fun walking around, talking to these fans. I think we have a little taste of it now. Hey, do you guys uh, have any clam chowder? No clam no, chowder no. here. It's 87. Are you, you're, so you're a big Gronk fan? <laughs> Funny. A big uh, Chris Hogan fan. That's cool. No. So you're saying you've kind of earned your trash talking rights. No, I don't trash talk. I don't. I throw beer. No, no. <laughs> you guys do talk a lot of trash. We do talk a lot of trash, but you know what? Win or lose, we're still always talking trash. <laughs> so, and there has been a lot of losing. They're... Yeah, they're good at it. Yeah, they're... I'm going to give you a word. You give me the first word that comes to your mind, okay? Oh, okay. Patriots. Losers. <laughs> that is just incorrect. <laughs> Patriots fans. Crazy. Bill Belichick. I hate him. That's three words. <laughs> Technically, that's three words. Tom Brady. Retiring tonight. Incorrect. We're looking for a greatest. That was the answer we were looking for. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they were polite. Boy, I would have smacked they you are. if I were out there. In a lot of those clips, by the way, I should point out, I was walking around in a Tom Brady jersey. Oh. And it was unbelievable. They were like flies on stink. They really, they would, they would come from out of nowhere and start yelling at you, but in a friendly way. Yeah. No one was ever mean to us. The mood did change a bit after the Patriots won. There was oh, a lot boy. of cheaters started getting thrown around, which yeah. I, yeah. I find to be the retort of choice once we yeah. won the game. So um, easy. But Such it was, an easy look. It really is. But it was, but it was so much fun. Uh, we didn't sleep much. Uh, this is what it's like to go on one of these trips. There was one point, 48-hour spam, we slept for two hours because you're doing the morning show and then you're you know, reporting throughout the course of the day and then you're doing the evening shows as well. So that part's not fun, but... The barbecue food, which I know we don't want to talk about, was fantastic. It's as good as advertised. Did you go to the back of the gas station? We did. We went to uh, truly. We found a place that was in a gas station. We've been told we had to go. It's called Kansas City Joe's, and the food was. Amazing. And what did was, you have? I had ribs. That's and, all right. I don't really care. <laughs> yeah. I don't really care. I, I, he doesn't want to hear. He doesn't want to hear. I'll just say. And I know it all just tasted the same. No, so it did that's not. It you did can just not. say, you know how barbecue sauce, I put that on it. So yeah. the whole plate of food yeah. tasted yeah. exactly the same. I've You've been deprived, Paul. The, the, thing, the <laughs> things that I watch for at a barbecue restaurant, actually more than the meat or anything, is how well do they do the beans? And their beans there, and we went to several different restaurants, and they had a wide variety of tastes, but they were superb. All kidding aside, I these sound like my kind of fans. Yeah. yeah. I, I fully endorse the concept of constant 
sports fan trash talking. Yes. No, that, yes. that is a huge part of the fun the ribbing. of sports. And the more you're trash talking a team, at least from a Bostonian's perspective, you know, Yankees suck, that whole mm-hmm. thing, that is not meant derogatorily. Sure. That sign is a respect. sign of respect. Sign of respect. Yeah. I will say if we had if I had done what I did with these Kansas City fans in Philadelphia, oh. yeah, I would oh, no. not be here right now. It would no, be ugly. No. I would not be here it right now. And that's ugly. what I liked about Kansas City fans. They had that same Patriots feel, Patriots fan feel where people will totally rib you, but they do it with half a smile, and you both get it. You both get that you're ribbing each other, and it's great. And then you eat actual ribs. No, <laughs> Philadelphia sports fans are not – they're not human. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're not oh, wow. No, they really are not. I mean, I'm not kidding. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Tons of Philly listeners are going to be they very are, upset with this. Yeah, you they better are, edit that out. They are a rough, <laughs> uh, are a rough bunch. Well, there was an eight. Yeah, oh, you're from are. Philly? Our city is truly the hub. The hub of the universe. Well, if you follow the news on social media in Boston, chances are you are following Universal Hub the hyperlocal Boston news blog that follows everything from zoning decisions to crime to the latest sightings of turkeys or Kitar bear on the city streets. And the man behind it, some people might know this, some people might not, is Adam Gaffin, a 59-year-old former tech writer who lives in Roslindale. And he joins us now. Adam, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. It's It's so nice to meet you in person. Yes, same here. I came out of the cave. (laughs) (laughs) We've all been following your tweets all these years, and here we are finally meeting. You know it. Yeah, so many people know Universal Hub, but they might not necessarily uh, know you. Uh, you have 65,000 followers on Twitter. When and how did this get off the ground? This has gone way back. Um, it was a hobby originally. You know, just there were a lot of good writers in the Boston area, and they all started blogging back around, God, the turn of the century. The blog was the big thing um, then. Right? And I just started collecting, like reading these things and thought it'd be cool to do a digest of them. And then gradually I started getting into more, like, breaking news. Um, And then, unfortunately, I got laid off and had to decide what to do with the rest of my life and thought, you know, Boston's a great place. As I don't have to tell you guys, but there's a lot of news here. And decided to try it full time. So let me ask, you're originally from Brooklyn. Right. What brought you to Boston in 1981? I'm one of those those guys who went to school here and then just was too lazy to go back. Where'd you go? So, Brandeis. Nice. So... You know, lived in Boston, except for a couple months in Newton, lived in Boston the whole time, and it's just a great place. You've been here for a long time now, more than 30 years. You were saying you But were I'm still not a, a native. That's <laughs> right. No, you're still new to the do area. People, do people say that to you? Do they go, you're my, still not a native guy? Yeah, yeah. My own daughter, who is a Rosie rat, <laughs> tells me she would never vote for me for mayor because <laughs> That's, <I'm right>. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible, but that is such a Boston yeah. thing. Oh, it is. Like the, the, the Red Sox ownership group always says they've won three World Series, but they're still the new owners. Right. Yes, right, of course. Right, right. No, I will say when, when I was looking for jobs in Boston in TV news, it was important to news directors that I was from here, that I was raised here. It's a very insular city, even though it's also a multicultural city. It's a very interesting But thing. it's also, it's, it, there's a pride of place here that you may not find in, you know, some other places, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Even the Boston accent, you know, you hear that and you know you're home. Yeah. It's true. Um, well, you're so, native Boston to us, I will okay. say. Yes, we will, <laughs> especially, we'll, you know what, fond of Roslyn. Yeah, we'll allow you in. 
You're in okay, the club so you're now. You're in this exclusive in. club. So you were saying you were you were an editor for a tech publication, and then you were laid off in 2009. So you did have this background in journalism, but not necessarily in in the type of journalism you're doing now, where it's well, actually, crime and everything. Well, actually, before I was a tech editor, I was a reporter at a paper in Framingham, which okay. is now the Metro West Daily News. It had a different name back then. So, in fact, one of the things that I found I still find interesting is I would cover these little meetings in these little towns and people get really upset and everything. When I started covering little meetings in, in neighborhoods in Boston, they're, they're very similar. People mm. will get outraged and getting back to the idea of being here, you know, like especially in Rosendale, people have to establish a hierarchy of how long they've lived in, in Rosendale. And I went Before to one meeting. Voice. Yeah, one guy, he was 90. So he, and he had grown up in the neighborhood. So he Anything he said had to go. Yeah. I will you know, say my mother went to Roslindale High School, oh, wow. which no okay. longer exists. Go, right. So right. she would have been legit at one of those yes. meetings. <laughs> but it's so interesting because we've been having this conversation just in terms of doing a podcast and social media as a news organization ourselves. Hyper-local news has become so important to people as sure. the national perspective has become so fractured. Um, how do you get your stories? Obviously, f- from being a newspaper reporter covering city halls and town meetings, you know you had well, those skills. How do you get your stories? One of one of the things that that online and social media has revolutionized new, or can revolutionize news gathering is everybody is essentially a reporter now. Everybody's walking around with their camera. Mm. Um, you know, so the instant the orange line catches on fire, I will know about it. Not because I'm some wizard, you know, following the fire department. But because somebody on that train is going to, after they call 911, they're going to get on there on Twitter and say, you know, such and such has happened. You always had people calling newspapers and newsrooms, but not to this extent. Not the old stringers. Yeah. yeah, yeah, except now it's everybody. Um, and in addition to that, there was a fire in Cambridge the other day, a four-alarm fire. You know, I'm posting photos of it that people are taking, like, from the scene. They're not professional photographers. They're, the, the, the shots are not, like, you know, really necessarily the best composer or whatever, but they're telling the story. Mm. And it's just something that we didn't really see a long time ago. And, and people will send them, because of your following at Universal Hub, they send them right to you. They want you to know it, and you're retweeting them. You're trying right. to learn stuff from them. Um, how did how did you build that? At what point did you reach that critical mass where people were just sending you stories all the time that, the, that allowed uh, you to the, keep on the, top of the, things? The moment it happened, when it sort of clicked, was um, there was a time when there was one of the the aqueducts into Boston burst out in Weston, and we lost all our water. And that was when, for whatever reasons, people started sending me stuff. And I was retweeting it, and it was really basic stuff like, can I drink water at a soda fountain? Um, where, can, where can I get water? You know, mm-hmm. and it became like this, this community. Um, you know, again, like news has become sort of a two-way conversation. It's become a conversation. It's not like when I first started out, you know, reporters are sort of up on a mountain yelling down at people. Mm. Now it's both ways. Um, people are reporting news, but you still need somebody sometimes to, like, collect that stuff and kind of figure out, like, what's going on. Mm. You know, and it's it's a fascinating thing. Well, and to that point, you say that you you listen to scanners a lot at home. You're yeah, yeah it drives my wife nuts, but I have the headphones. <laughs> you got the headphones on. <laughs> you're listening to the scanners as sure. we are here in the newsroom. Sure. How do you confform the information that you hear? Because everybody in journalism knows you can't just rely yes, on scanner I, traffic. I, the first reports are often not accurate. So what's your process? Uh, a couple things. You, you're absolutely right. And you have to be very careful, when, especially when you're first listening to the scanner and you hear stuff. 
And it's like, okay, you know, even something like it, has the person been stabbed or shot? You know, sometimes mm. even the cops don't know because, well, there's blood all over the place. Um, at least in Boston, after a while, you start hearing stuff. You know, when they start repeating things, when they start saying, all oh, the medical examiner's on the way, um, you know, I found bullets, you begin to to get, okay, something has happened. Then you follow up, you call, you know, the public relations department. Because one advantage that you guys have over me is you have lots of, not lots, but you have you have a number of reporters. You actually mm-hmm. send people to the scene, which is yes, great. Yes, right. Um, I admit it. I'm sitting in my dining room or upstairs or whatever. I'm not going to a lot of these scenes because if I do, I'll miss something. You know, so sometimes I'll, I'll rely on you guys for, for confirmation. You know, WBC reports that. So you yeah. attribute different news oh, organizations. Yeah, definitely. You know, Boston is blessed that we do have um, a pretty large, even with all the layoffs over the last 10 years, we still have a pretty large number of reporters out there. Mm. And there's a lot of competition. I mean, what other city has two um, NPR stations with news organizations? Two papers. Right. And two newspapers. Six t- TV stations. Yeah. Yeah. And you're all and and you know it's not like watching i'll give you guys credit it's not like watching tv in some other cities where there's not a lot there i mean mm. you guys do a pretty good job and rather than me trying to compete with you like i'll go for the little stories that you're not going to pick up not necessarily because you're bad or anything it's just you know you don't care about zoning hearings there's only like a, a one neighborhood that cares about it right mm-hmm. right but to that neighborhood it's really it's hugely everything. important yeah. and and so that's why i love getting those like going to zoning hearings there are houses and apartment buildings and stuff going up that people are really upset about or have a concern about mm. and one of the things you do we've been saying you do so well is is the high is hyper local news zoning issues that sort of thing but what's your most read story ever do you know <laughs> what your most read story ever is um i think well during um the, the bombing, after the bombings, mm. uh, my traffic took off tremendously, which was a lot of it was from overseas. For some reason, people were picking up my stuff and running it. And, you know, I wasn't doing anything spectacular. I mean, the Globe had, you guys had the visuals. The Globe had some really in-depth stories. I don't know, something about the Google algorithm or whatever. Um, snowstorms. In fact, I think my, my peak day was during one of the nor'easters that we had last March. Because, you know, everybody's sitting at home, and what are they doing? They're taking pictures of the cars floating down the street. Oh, yeah. Have you started to uh, gather a group of sources that leak you information? Um, I, not, I haven't intentionally, but, I mean, there are people who will drop me stuff, you know, just like I'm sure people drop stuff to you. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's people who, like, see things in their neighborhood and say, what's going on here? Uh, occasionally people, you know, in City Hall or whatever. I the the problem I have is, um, you know, I don't have time to do like invest real investigative reporting. You know, if you look at my site, a lot of the stuff is like you know really short. It's almost like wire service mm. stuff. Even even silly stuff like turkeys. You know, right. and, and, and people love them. People but, love them. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. That's one thing yes. that's changed. I remember ten, like 10, 15 years ago, it was big news when there was one turkey in Cambridge in Kendall Square. And he was this big deal, and they gave him a name, and they finally had to get take him somewhere else because he was running into traffic. Now it's like, you know, there are flocks of them all over the place. John Keller hates them. 
<laughs> I love them. I, I think, think they provide the, the um, joy to the day. They do. They make you yeah, smile. I, I mean, they're, they're cool, and, and, and they keep doing these bizarre things. Sure. Like, you know, in, in West Roxbury last winter, we had Larry the turkey. who right. he, he had this one little corner, and unfortunately, he started going after cars, and one car went after him. And oh, boy. That was the end of Larry. We covered the obituary <laughs> of Larry the turkey. That's, That's right. right. Yeah, Poor because guy. somebody put out a candle and, and a little um, stuffed turkey, you know, to... to <laughs> One of the things that uh, anyone who reads your site knows is that when there's an issue on the MBTA, you report it and you'll put a rhyme to it often. So I'm looking at one from uh, yesterday and I won't read the full thing because it was a pain in the A, that dead train at JFK UMass. And this is what you'll do with the MBTA stories. Originally, I would – again – when when people would tell me that they're on a dead train or whatever, I would write about it. And at first, I tried coming up with with synonyms for dead. You know, and there's only so many ways you can say dead, deceased, um, <laughs> ascended to Valhalla. You right. know, yeah. It, after a while, you just couldn't do it. So I started yeah. getting into rhymes, and some people hate it. You know, it's like enough already. And some <laughs> of the rhymes really are really bad. What are some of the biggest changes, other than wildlife, that uh, you've seen in the life of the city? Development. Hmm. You know, when when I first moved here, Boston had come back from 50 years of decline. But the development that we've we've seen over the last five years, the the fact that the population of the city is like, we could reach 700,000 at some point, and it's it's, and every single building that's going in looks identical. It's like you you can be it's in all luxury. Well, it's not. It it's a lot of it's market rate. So it's you know down by the seaport, it's. The luxury, the luxury, you know, with the granite it. countertops or whatever, or stainless steel appliances. <laughs> Hyde Park and JP and, and Rocks, even Roxbury now, you're not seeing luxury housing, but it, it's all this sort of, you know, bland. 21st century American prefab. Yeah, and it's all, you know, it, it's all wooden behind there, and who knows what's going to happen in 50 years when the wood starts to sink a little. But the fact that just Boston is growing by leaps and bounds um, is is just an amazing thing. Well, the, the as you mentioned, the the sort of flight from the inner city in the fifties, sixties, early seventies had kind of dissipated by the time you arrived at Brandeis, and mm, now sure. we're seeing people from the suburbs moving back in after their kids are grown and gone. Yeah, that's contributing. In addition to the young people, I think being drawn by a lot of tech companies and jobs. But it's astounding when you think about a neighborhood like West Roxbury, where I can't remember if it was three or four years ago, the median price of a home there went over $500,000. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Skyrocketing. That was a community where people, you know, my grandfather was a Boston police officer, and that's where he raised his family because But even more bizarre than that, there was a part of Roslindale that had been fighting for like a couple decades to get their zip code changed to 02132 because, you know, it's West Roxbury. And they finally won. Housing prices in Roslindale are now higher than they are in West Roxbury. Really? And it's like you know, when we bought our house, one of the reasons we bought Rosendale was a lot cheaper than West Roxbury. You know, there's the whole issue of people being priced out of these neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. You know, people can't afford JP anymore, so they're moving into Rosendale. Now, so they're kicking people out into Hyde Park. The circle is going to go further and further out. But there's nothing a- after Hyde Park is the Neponset River. And <laughs> <laughs> you can't you know, push them there. You can't go to Milton because Milton is like so expensive. I know, I get yeah. concerned that what happened to New York, the greater oh, metropolitan yeah. area in the 60s and 70s, is what's happening to Boston now, mm-hmm. where people are going to have to live an hour outside of Boston to commute in. Right. But the and problem is we don't have the mass transportation that, to that's accommodate ex- that. That's exactly it. And, and, and if you look at, you know, 495, there's 
I, when I first moved up here, 495 at night, there was nothing there. Right. You know, and they had call boxes every like five miles because in case you broke down, God forbid. Wow. Yeah. Now, I mean, there's rush hour traffic on 495, mm-hmm. but there's no mass transit. Mm. And especially problem. when you're talking about what's happening in Roxbury now, the same thing that happened in the South End in the 70s and, and early 80s is happening in, around Dudley Square. That's why you're starting to see movement by some of the people on the city council to, to try to protect renters and, and to you know, do something about flipping. Right. That's where the... Um, if you can't afford a house, you rent. And right. Even the, the rents are insane. Right. Yeah. Well, all these extra people moving into Boston mean more readers for Universal <laughs> Hub. That's Adam right. Gaffin, thank you so much for coming in. We appreciate all these years. We finally uh, meet face-to-face. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. That, then, is the way the There's been a lot in the news lately about not just the rise of women in politics, but the rise of women of color. In particular, we have our first uh, African-American member of the House of Representatives, Ayanna Presley, elected here recently. Our first uh, African-American female DA, Suffolk County, Rachel Rollins. Uh, But uh, perhaps a little bit overlooked because she's been around for a little while is uh, Andrea Campbell, the district counselor from Mattapan, who was elected last year by her peers uh, for a two-year term as Boston City Council president. Uh, We sat down to talk with her, and first of all, I humiliated myself by botching her first name multiple times. It's Andrea Campbell, not Andrea. Uh, And uh, she has a very interesting take on how you go about trying to lead, trying to focus attention on somewhat neglected social issues, as she is trying to do, when even when you're the president of a body that just doesn't have a whole lot of power. She acknowledges that the Boston City Council is part of a so-called strong mayor system. How do you get around that and push the mayor in the direction you want to go, get the conversation going the way you want it to go? Listen to what she has to say. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. So, Madam President, or what do you prefer, counselor or just Andrea? Um, Andrea and Madam President. (laughs) Andrea. I missed it again. Let me start again. Andrea, thank you for being here. Thank you. So when we were chatting uh, for our TV segment that aired last Sunday morning, you said something that kind of stuck with me. We were talking about racial equity and economic equality, and you were talking about your district, which is predominantly people of color, and talking about issues like transportation. And you said that many of your constituents don't have access to public transit. How can that be in a major American city? Um, So, you know, when talking about transportation, we often talk about the quality of our tea and needing to improve the quality of our tea. Um, My district largely covers the red line and doing more there, the Fairmount line. Um, A lot of great work happening with respect to uh, expansion for the Fairmount line. But there are pockets of different neighborhoods where you have to go quite a bit to get to either a bus um, or a trolley to then get to a train. Um, So it's easier probably for some folks in Mattapan to go towards Milton Brock 
often for a job than it is to get on a tee to go downtown. And so when talking about bringing an Amazon or a large employer here, we have to talk about in, in conjunction with um, transportation access, um, but also paint the picture fully. Um, and so it can't just be about quality of transportation. It also has to be about access, um, which connects, of course, to the conversation re related to jobs or bringing employers here um, and just opportunity. Because I remember some years ago, there was a lot of, talk, of discussion around the issue of getting workers from the, from the city, from city neighborhoods, out to jobs in the 128 belt, mm -hmm. tech jobs and other kinds of jobs. Was that ever addressed in a meaningful way? I don't, I mean, I don't know. I've heard stories around that. Um, but for me, in order to, in, to me to have, for me to have the greatest impact in my district, and that is to ensure that folks have jobs or access to any opportunity that they envision for themselves, um, it really is thinking outside the box. Um, so with respect to transportation, since that's what we're talking about now, it, I'm sometimes just a little bit um, baffled that when we talk about it, it only goes so far. And so for me, it's it's having um, a more robust conversation around access to these opportunities. And it may be, for example, an employer that's outside the city of Boston might be able to think creatively about how do you how do they create transportation, um, whether it's improving a public transit system or doing something privately. Shuttle I don't know. Bus, something something yep. um, that allows folks to get to not only a job, a career, um, a job that pays them a living wage to allow them to, you know, close a wealth gap, right? Um, so I think we just have to think outside the box and creatively if we're going to address some of these major issues. Is the MBTA a good partner in these kinds of conversations or not? Sometimes. Um, frankly, I just had a conversation yesterday with um, a, a T or MBTA employee who wants to be more helpful. Um, and this was a woman of color who says, I too am concerned about whether or not folks who live in my district are at the table when we're making decisions with respect to fair increases um, or anything else with in, in terms of the T. If you're going to create places where you automate um, and people don't have current access now to be able to buy a, a T pass, how can you then do automation without closing these gaps for some of these constituents? And so she wants to be in partnership with me to talk about how do we make sure that the concerns of vulnerable populations and people of color um, and poor people uh, are at the table and addressed when we are making these decisions in government. Do you have concerns about what automation might do to the economic prospects of the people you represent? Absolutely. And if we are not, um, I frankly think we need to be talking about that a lot more. Automation is happening. It's not on its way. It is happening. Um, so it's making sure our employees have access to um, places or to expand their skill set, and then, of course, are guaranteed some career pathway or another career pathway so that they can retire and be happy. Because there, were, there was an article in the paper a couple of weeks ago that caught my eye about State Street, the big um, uh, financial management firm, announcing that they're going to cut 15% of their senior executives mm. uh, because their work is going to be automated. And I thought to myself, okay, now we're going to start to see a lot more public backlash against automation now that it's hitting that class of worker as opposed to just 
folks on the assembly line at an right, auto plant right. or what have you. I mean, everyone should care about this. Sorry to have to say that, but isn't that just the and, reality? Well, everyone should care about this, right? Um, at the end of the day, I like to think we all want our neighbor, um, regardless of whether they're senior level, middle management, entry level, to have a good wage, um, know that they have good benefits, and so that when they finish working, and sometimes, what, after 20, 30, 40 years, that they and their families are taken care of. I think we all want that. Um, how do we make sure that as we grow our economy and technologies to create products and put products out there um, in a more efficient way? We look at Amazon, it's constantly growing, and we're saying, oh, this is so great, now I can just take a, uh, a tied button, put it on my washing machine, press the button, and it's at my door. You know, all this is automation. And, and frankly, I think more, more consumers want more of that. But then the, the ugly side of that is, what are we doing to these jobs that usually had a human being attached to it? We're talking with Boston City Councilor Andrea Campbell, president of the city council. How did I, I got it right, didn't yes, I? Yes, thank Excellent. you. Excellent. I'm, I'm learning. <laughs> Give me time. I'm a slow thank learner. You. As we're talking, you uh, refer often to conversations. Is that essentially where the power of the council resides these days as a uh, um, What's the proper word here? I was going to say antagonist, but that's not the right word. But to basically just use the forum to stir the pot rather than having any tremendous legislative power? Is that a fair so, description? Well, you know, on paper, the council is its a strong mayor city, a weak council. Um, but we have the incredible responsibility of approving, uh, reviewing and approving the budget of the city of Boston, which is over $3 billion. Um, it's one that, I, not just me, all of my colleagues, of course, take seriously. And that's an opportunity to an interject our voice on the issues that we care about based on what we hear from our constituents. Um, and that is a platform for us to share stories that we hear from our constituents that will hopefully change policy and shift policy, move money around to address these stories that we hear. That's, there's tremendous power in that, um, taking someone's story and talking about losing a job after working at a company for 10 years, or a student who doesn't have access to a quality education and their family just feels stuck um, because they can't afford to go to a parochial school, or they didn't get into MECO, or they didn't get into a charter school, and they don't like the BPS option they got. So we take these stories and we bring them into the council space, and sometimes we take our own personal stories and bring those into the council space. Um, Right now, we have a council that of advocates, lawyers, uh, former teachers, um, folks who want to work in partnership with one another. And I have the privilege of leading this body and, and helping us do that, which is an incredible honor. And that allows us to actually have a greater impact. Um, so I think this new council that is the most diverse in, this, in the history of the city of Boston, you have six women of color, um, is going to effectuate change not only because of the people around the table not only look different, bring different skills and strengths um, and backgrounds, personal and professional, um, but also it's a unique opportunity to change the conversation, to expand the conversation. And that then, um, I think, gets the mayor to pay attention not only to the nitty-gritty logistics of, of the council, but to say, wait a minute, what is it that Councilor Campbell spoke of? Can we work in partnership on these issues? That's tremendous power to be able to influence not only him, but also what's happening at the State House um, and federally. The uh, Boston City Council also uh, has some ideological 
uh, diversity now with the ascension of Althea Garrison to the uh, spot formerly held by Ayanna Presley, who's now member of Congress. Uh, uh, Councillor Garrison, as I understand it, is a Trump supporter. How's that working out? Just great. Um, You know, she joined the council, and of course, we wanted to make sure we welcomed her. So we had um, welcomed her at our first council meeting. I hosted a reception, which all of my colleagues came to to um, welcome her to the council. And she cares about housing. She cares about all of the major issues that we're talking about. And that's where we talk. That's what we talk about. I actually have never heard her once say, since I've met her, I'm a Trump supporter, and that's all you should know about me. She's never said that. If anything, she's talked about the issues that constituents are talking about, how expensive it is to live in the city of Boston, gentrification, displacement, um, jobs, economic development. Um, She cares about these various issues, and we each want to work in partnership with her. And I, of course, want to make sure that anything she puts on her agenda gets done this term. A couple of other things I want to get into with you. Uh, you're a district councilor, a Mattapan, much of Dorchester, uh, parts of Rosendale, Jamaica Plain. Right. Dorchester is my biggest neighborhood. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as president, you have to take, a, to some extent, a citywide perspective. So even though it's not in your district, I'm interested in your early thoughts about this potential new neighborhood opening up in Alston along the Charles River with the plan, which still has a long way to go before there's, there's uh, shovels in the ground, uh, that the state has offered to drop the Mass Pike to ground level, straighten it out, uh, elevate Soldiers Field Road, good luck with that, and, and thus open up the grimy old train yards and some other area down there for development into what would be the city's most significant new neighborhood since the development of the seaport. And in the wake of that uh, excellent Boston Globe series about race in the city, going back a couple years now, where they devoted a whole segment to the... um, the sort of, for lack of a better term, lily-white composition of the seaport, commercially and residentially, uh, what, if any, concerns do you have about the future of this potential new Alston neighborhood and avoiding falling into the same trap? So you're exactly right, district councilor first, and I'm very proud of that, um, but also, of course, proud to be the council president. Um, and I'm mindful that I am a district councilor. It's a tricky balance because there are other district councilors, eight of them. Um, that report or spotlight series, I often tell folks when I was uh, when it was determined that I was going to be the next Boston City Council president in December, I literally on the cover of that globe was that spotlight series. And then in the uh, metro section was the announcement that I was going to be the first black woman council president. Um, I take that very serious. Um, and don't think it's by accident, right? that, or I don't think anything by accident, given my faith, but looking at that Spotlight series, I take those issues very seriously. Um, And so for me, every issue, we should look through this racial equity lens so that we don't continue to create um, neighborhoods, for example, where folks in certain parts of the city don't feel like they have access. I have to add, you know, I have a resident um, or a group of residents who live in Codman Square in a senior housing building, and I share this often. I remember having a resident there who says, I want to go to that new neighborhood. And all of, us, all of us were saying, what new neighborhood? She was talking about the seaport. She's lived in Dorchester for decades, and yet that new neighborhood felt so foreign, so far away. Um, so we from government space have to be really intentional about how do we make sure that this prosperity that people feel in new neighborhoods downtown 
feels shared and that everyone is a part of it. And that still isn't quite, we're not there yet. Um, but we can be there by talking about it and, and taking action and being mindful and conscious of these issues and concerns. Councillor Andrea Campbell, Boston City Council President. I, I got it right, didn't I? Andrea Campbell. But you will someday. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for having me. Andrea Campbell. Thank, thank you, you for being with us on Studio BZ. Thank you. That, then, is the way the How would you like the next time you vote, you don't pick just one candidate for the position, but rank your choices in order? That's the goal of the movement for what's called ranked choice voting. It just made a big difference in the 2018 midterms. Jared Golden, a Democrat, unseated Republican Congressman Bruce Poliquin in Maine's 2nd Congressional District because of this new voting system, which Maine has adopted. Supporters argue ranked choice can fix a broken two-party system that is increasingly polarized, but there are detractors. Here today is a supporter of ranked choice voting, Adam Friedman, the executive director of Voter Choice Massachusetts. Adam, thanks so much for coming in. Happy to be here. This is a very interesting topic. There's more and more talk about this. In the simplest possible terms, how does it work? Very simple. So the way we vote now, as you explained, is we pick one. With ranked choice voting, you get to rank order more than one candidate. You rank them in the order you prefer them. So you get a first choice that's your favorite a second choice, a third choice, and so on. The beauty of this is that it gives the voter the power of backup choices. If your favorite can't win, your vote will instantly transfer to your next available ranking. And that means that you never go into the voting booth worried that if you don't vote for a front runner, you're going to throw your vote away or waste your vote. And so that people can visualize this, we're listening to the podcast. Let's say you have you have a, a ballot right here, a, a, a mock ballot for governor in Massachusetts. Let's say there were three candidates, uh, Baker, Coakley, and Falchuk, as there, as there was a few years ago. You would rank them. When Falchuk was eliminated, his second choice, the voters who voted for him, their second choices would now go to Coakley and Baker if neither Baker nor Coakley had a majority after the first round of counting. You've got it. That's exactly right. So it gives voters the opportunity to vote honestly, because right now, Evan Falchuk ran as an independent. He knocked on door after door after door, and a lot of people liked him. But what they said to Evan was said, you know, I really like what you stand for. You have a pragmatic platform, but I won't vote for you because— I don't think you can win. Exactly. And what people always say, voters always say, is they're tired of negative campaigning. They don't like negative ads, although negative ads always work, right? So— <laughs> How do you argue this system discourages negative campaigning, negative perception? That's a great question. Candidates? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's not exactly something I need to argue because the cities that have used ranked choice voting around the country, and right now there are 12 localities that have used it, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Santa Fe, Oakland, California, uh, and, and several more, uh, they actually have, have been scholarly research that have done that have shown that candidates who run with ranked choice voting actually are more positive and voters perceive less neg negativity at the polls. And this is why. As a candidate, I'm not only fighting for my first choice votes from voters, but I want second and third rankings as well, particularly if it's a crowded field and I need that extra support to get that majority. What that means is I can actually appeal to my opponent's base. Even if they're not going to put me first, 
I can find common ground with them. Maybe our environmental policy is similar, maybe something on transportation or healthcare, and I ask for their second choice vote. And the thing that I don't do as a candidate ever is mudsling against their favorite, because that will alienate that audience Mm. and they won't put me as their second or third. So it's a natural incentive to stick to the issues and find common ground rather than to knock out other candidates. Obviously, a lot of detractors will say right off the bat, it just sounds too confusing, mm-hmm. right? You've brought us a visual aid here. Mm-hmm. We've had our producer was saying when he was trying to uh, produce for television an explainer on ranked choice voting, isn't that a big hurdle right off the bat that people will just say, ah, forget it. I just want to go up and vote for one right. person. No, you're, you, you've, you've hit upon a common myth, a misconception about ranked choice voting that it's complicated. Um, that is the first thing that we hear when people first hear about it. The beauty of ranked choice voting is once you see that ballot visually, you get it because it's a it's a bubble grid. We've all taken a, a, a Scantron test in school, and we all can count one, two, three. So we all have the we all have the understanding that if we don't have our favorite, we have backup choices. Something amazing happened a couple of years ago. The state of Maine became the first state in U.S. history to actually implement ranked choice voting, and they used it successfully for two cycles for the primary and the general last year. Uh, And what they found was 87% of voters in that primary, in that Democratic primary, actually used the rankings, which indicates that voters immediately uh, understand it and utilize it, use the power of the backup choices. The other 13% just picked one and didn't didn't pick the The other. That's right. And then in in, um, Minneapolis, they did exit polling uh, for their first couple of mayoral races with ranked choice voting. And they they found that 95% of voters found the ranked ballot easy and intuitive. Let's talk about Maine. Uh, Jared Golden, we were saying in the introduction, won the second congressional district because of ranked choice voting. His opponents, Republican Bruce Poliquin, had more votes in the first round of counting, but he did not get a majority. And that's what touched off the second round of counting. And officials then counted everyone's second choices. Golden was the second choice of more voters, and he ended up reaching a majority before Poliquin did, and he won. He won Maine second congressional district. Poliquin has said this is not fair. He brought it to court. He ended up, uh, you know, abandoning that court challenge. But is it fair? Is it fair that there were more people whose first choice was Poliquin than there was for Jared Golden, yet Golden's going to represent that district? It's a, it's a great question. It's a, it's a textbook example of ranked choice voting working exactly as designed. And the reason is you can't just get the biggest slice or the biggest tribe of voters to win in a ranked choice voting election. You can't win with 25% of the vote. You can't win with 40%. You need to have more than 50%. And that's exactly what Poliquin failed to do. He did not attain a majority of voter sentiment. So therefore, he was not the best fit for the district. It happened that the two Two independent candidates that ran alongside the major party candidates, they pulled 8% of the vote. So they were pulling Golden's votes from him. That's what was showed after. When you looked at those voters' second choices, the vast majority of them put Jared Golden as their second choice. So if if we hadn't had the power of ranked choice voting to make sure those independent voters voices continued to be heard, we would have had the common scourge of our election system, which is called the spoiler effect. That's where you have a third party or an independent that siphons votes from the majority and literally flips the outcome for, the to Ralph, someone who probably needed in 2000. There, there has been an argument example. about this. I know you probably sure. know this since you're so well versed in it. Jason Soren's essay about Maine. Um, he says that he gives an example of 
obviously he's he's opposed. So he, the disadvantages of IRV, which he calls it. Um, he says, take, for example, the 1992 presidential race, right, where it's Bush and Ross Perot and Clinton. He says, under IRV, if everyone votes sincerely, Clinton wins after Bush is eliminated in the first round, even though 65% of voters prefer Bush to Clinton. But it gets worse. These are his words. If just a small number of Perot preferers put Bush first and Perot second, then Perot would be eliminated first and Bush, their second choice, would win. They'd have a strategic incentive to falsify their preferences. So he goes on to say, as the bush clinton Perot example shows, it can fail to select the candidate that a majority of voters prefer. In fact, this happened in Burlington's mayoral election in 2009, causing the city to end IRV for mayoral elections, when the progressive won over the Republican in the final round of counting, even though the Democrat eliminated earlier, Hmm. was actually the winner. So so when you sure. have, you know, issues like that, how do you explain to people sure. that these problems won't come up and clearly Burlington decided to Yeah. Yeah. No, so that that's really so there's a lot in that and there's yeah, a lot there of nuance. Was a lot. To it is very up. confusing. And we'd have to really look <laughs> at the numbers, numbers and look at the specific rankings to see. Um, I'll touch on Burlington first. So yeah. Oftentimes you have a city will change over to ranked choice voting and someone who was maybe a party darling or a political machine darling who expects to win ends up losing under ranked choice voting because the breakaway vote or the vote of challengers or opponents, have, the rankings add up to a majority for one of those breakaway voters and they overturn you know, what someone expected would be an easy sailing to victory. And this, that was exactly what happened in Burlington. You had a pretty well-known candidate who thought that they would win, they lost, and then they made it their life's mission to um, try to overturn the, the new rules that quote-unquote caused them to lose. But it was really just they didn't have that majority of, of higher rankings. So the issue of um, making the claim that someone truly has m- the most support among voters but loses in ranked choice voting – that will only come up if maybe there's a, a candidate who is kind of a milk toast candidate, like a candidate that says the right thing to everybody and is kind of middle of the road, middling, and doesn't say anything controversial. And then you have every, you know, 80% of voters put them on their ballot, like as the third choice. That could happen. But the beauty of ranked choice voting is actually that even though it might seem that someone has broad support the depth of their support is very shallow because they don't stand for anything. And what happens in that scenario is they don't get enough first choices to remain to, in to the make instant it to the runoff. Round. Exactly. So that they get eliminated. So they may have had the breadth of support, but they don't have the depth of support. And ranked choice voting elegantly balances both so that you can't just say be all things to all people and win a ranked choice voting election. You still have to have a base of some kind. But the, but the idea is that you shouldn't be winning an election just because you have 25% of the voters who passionately support so you. So where does the movement stand? Maine has gone to ranked choice. You were listing off some of the cities that have. Yep. Where does it go from here? Where do we stand? 
to Massachusetts. Is Massachusetts considering this at all? Ranked choice, yeah. Ranked choice voting is one of the only advanced voting systems that has gotten real political traction in the U.S. And in fact, a lot of people don't know this, but when you look at all the implementations and enactments around the country, it's been enacted or used in 21 U.S. states around the country. That's, that's, that's happening now. So it's been enacted in Memphis, Tennessee, and they're awaiting usage. It's been used in Santa Fe, and they had record voter turnout for their last mayoral election. And in Massachusetts, because of the wonderful victory of advocates and the people of Maine who voted twice at the ballot to make sure that they had ranked choice voting, we are now the largest statewide effort for this in the country. Are you going to try to put this on the ballot in Massachusetts? How, how is this going to work? We, no, um, right now, we're working to pass ranked choice voting through the legislature. Did I read this? That Ireland and Australia use it? Oh, yeah. For their national elections. Australia's been using this for over 100 years for national elections. Ireland, about 80 years. India actually has been using this for decades to elect their president. They have an indirect election where all the members of the Indian Congress use ranked choice voting to select their president. And this is your baby, obviously. Do you see that eventually happening here? Is that the ultimate push is to bring this all the way to the federal level? Definitely. I think that the time is right. I think the climate in our country is in crisis. I think a lot of Americans are very dissatisfied with what's happening nationally. I mean, we're, how, how many days are we into the shutdown? That is, that is unconscionable. We're supposed to be a leader of the free world. We're supposed to have our stuff together and be forward-thinking people, one of the most advanced economies, yet one of the most regressive political instruments at the, in terms of the federal level. We need change, and voters recognize that. Voters have the appetite for it. They realize that ranked choice voting is a way for voters to get better results at the ballot and get a government that actually is accountable to people. Adam Friedman, Voter Choice Massachusetts. Thanks so much for coming in. We appreciate it. Thanks, Adam. Thanks so much. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. 538, the famous uh, electoral forecasting website, now has a personality quiz. There are so many of these personality quizzes around testing your personality. And this one, they say, though, the headline is, most personality quizzes are junk science. Take one that isn't. And they didn't design this. It's from uh, a bunch of researchers. Mm -hmm. At uh, Colby College. At Colby College, right. And they've put together, but 538 has put together on their site an easy-to-take way. And the reason they say that this one is more science-based is that it doesn't just break it into one neat score at the end. We actually, it must have been a couple of months ago here on the Studio Easy podcast, all took up one of these personality tests well, with Malika, Dr. Malika Marshall. And I turned out to be far and away the nicest. You were. By one point, you beat, <laughs> yeah. you beat and I was beat third or fourth place. Yeah. And Jonathan, Jonathan Case was, was off the charts. He, was in, he, they, wow. he, he scored a serial killer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, <laughs> he, he works out of a, a hermetically sealed glass booth <laughs> That's right, he's behind the us. studio. Yeah, yeah, so he, he can't get to With us. no direct in, <laughs> interaction. You're, you're lucky everybody's changed. <laughs> <laughs> Easy, Mongo. This one does not give you just one score. What it does is it scores you on five different personalities traits. Yeah. And they write, the, the big five does not put people into neat personality types because that's not how personalities really work. Instead, the quiz, quiz gives you a score on five different traits. And the traits are extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, negative emotionality, meaning 
your proclivity toward anxiety and anger, that sort of thing. And then the last one is openness to experience. Mm. And so we have all taken this. Do, you're, are you still currently taking it, Paula? I'm done. You have finished no, taking it. Do you remember off the top of your head some of your questions? That basically, yeah, it was it, like, are you, are you often rude to people? And you either went from like strongly disagree to agree strong, to strongly agree. Right. It gives you a bunch of ranges where you it, it'll right. say, are you often you you are often rude to people. I struggled with that one because yeah. it's you know, are you the question should have been, are you rude to people who have it coming? <laughs> In which case, my answer is very different. <laughs> it, it, it seemed to want to measure, are you occasionally, do you snap at someone, yeah. or is this a daily occurrence? You know what could be fun is if we guess how each of us did on each of the traits, okay? Right. want to do that? that? But we have to agree, okay. no one's going to get angry. Well, I don't have my results in front of me. I guess I better call them up, huh? Yes. You probably know generally how okay. you, how you do it. I scored high. You scored high. You scored high. Okay, everything. so yes. the first thing that it's measuring is openness, openness to, experience, to experience, and it's a score out of 100, but there's a range. So it's not if you are in the 60s or something, that's not a bad score. There's a range above which you're still considered open to experience. I'm going to go for open to experience with John. Yes. I'm going to go in the 70s. 70s, I, which is fairly high openness to experience. I believe it was up in the 80s. Really? Yeah. Okay. Because while I have strong opinions about what I like and don't like, I'll pretty much try we'll anything try once. Yeah, I think Paula would score very high on openness Remember to experience. Remember back, this is probably before you were born, but there was a craze for a while of chocolate-covered insects. Yes, yes. chocolate-covered ants. ongoing, yeah. ongoing because yes. of you know, uh, food shortages in certain parts right. of the country. Yeah. You would I, do it. I tried it. Yes, yeah. Would you I order them in was... the mail? How did you try it? I don't know. Uh, yeah. I think or you they, just went and made some of your own. They were. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Dug up no some I'm grubs. not a real pull the wings You're off creature type. You're not quite that type. open to experience. <laughs> no. Not quite that open no. to experience. No. Yeah, I'm uh, open to experience, but I'm cautious. So okay. I think that's yeah. why I scored in the 70s. Okay. I would think you'd be off the charts in this. No, I, I, no? I, scored, in the, I scored in the high 60s on what? openness really? experience. Partly because I think I have a healthy, I say, healthy level of anxiety. Huh, and that will prevent me from doing certain things True. that I otherwise might try. And yet you would get into a driverless car. <laughs> yes, I would get. Well, I'll get into a driverless car once all of the guinea pigs have given it the try first. Exactly. He's waiting yeah. for the I'm studies wait, I'm to waiting for back. it to be, to be really perfected. Then absolutely get me behind it. Because, Second wave. Because the one thing I'm not open to is driving around with all the other maniacs <laughs> on the road with humans behind the wheels. So you would, for instance, sample any kind of strange or exotic food as long yes. as you witnessed a loved one taste it first. <laughs> right, right. Yes, anything, got the anything that's not poisonous. Yeah, no, I would try chocolate-covered insects. Uh, yeah. I think I would try chocolate-covered insects. wouldn't seek them out. But if someone handed it to me, I might... Try that. The next trait here is yeah. sorry. Go, go, ahead, ahead. Go, ahead. go ahead. The next trait here is agreeableness. Agreeableness. And Paula's got to be off the charts for agreeableness. I did score high on this. Okay. As How high did we score? Out of one hundred. I'm an eighty-three. Eighty-three out of hundred. But coming from a big family, you are naturally prone to be agreeable. Otherwise, you would never survive. Yeah, you kind of have to be because you you're one of be. Paula's the last of eleven children. If we haven't mentioned that, and so yeah, you're right. You have to go along to get along, John. I think you're agreeable, but maybe a little lower than well, Paula. I, you know, I mean, by profession, I'm kind of a skeptic, and I'm a little bit, admitted, maybe a little bit flinty in a delightfully avuncular way. And, uh, what a way to so play, I was, in, I was in the 70s. I was in the 70s. You are in the 70s on that. Okay. I'm, I think that you would, what do you think for Liam on agreeableness? 
you know, I would say, yeah, maybe low 80s. Yeah, okay, I'm 79, so okay. you guys are pretty close. Right, yeah. But it, now this is a weird thing where I feel like none of these personality tests can actually be terribly accurate because you're answering for yourself, and you're, which you're probably the best judge of yourself than it, that there can be, but it all depends on what mood you're in that day. Yes, you know how how much What's sleep these, have you had recently? You're agreeable in some circumstances, but we're not all going to be agreeable in others. Right, exactly. See, I would yeah. challenge the notion that you're the best judge of yourself. Hmm. Uh, I think many times you can be the worst judge, hmm. yeah, depending true. on the situation. But uh, you know, for instance, there are occasionally people who. Tell me I come across a certain way. And, you know, I think to myself, well, I don't see it. What so so shut the hell up. Yeah, and, and get away from me. And yeah. That guy just. And, and I'm sorry. You must be under the impression just that I you, care what you think. And just, right. and just because you don't agree with something doesn't mean you're disagreeable. True. Sure. What if, if something you're disagreeing with is. Something to BS. which you should be disagreeing. I, mean, I find disagreeable people, people who will really. Just be argumentative over everything. Right. Yeah. And always looking right. for the and, negative. Yes. People who are always negative, always complaining. Yeah. Okay. So none of us okay. fix that. The third yeah. is conscientiousness. And oh. I, this is where I think this, this did not come out well. I think I'm quite conscientious. Yes. And it gave me a 67 out of 100. Now, again, that's still mm-hmm. in the high range, but mm-hmm. it's low high range. And I was kind of annoyed yeah, with this result. I was not agreeable. Toward this regu- <laughs> so you were very high in conscientiousness. Oh, Catholic schoolgirl here. I yeah. am off Although, the charts. Yeah, we won't get into it, but you know my theory about Catholic See, I was confused <laughs> about what that even means. I mean, do I... If you're I... given something to do, you will do it to the end and make sure that you yes. follow yeah, through. Yeah, no, I gave You'll myself... You'll never leave someone hanging. You I were, gave myself yeah. a high score on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I bust my own dishes and yes. wash them. Right. Yeah. Put them one of the, the statements dishes. is you are reliable. Another one that tests this is you finish tasks that are given to you, that sort of thing. Here's my favorite part. It says, the spouses of highly conscientious people can end up with better health than they otherwise would. The have. spouses of highly well, of course, because yes, that means that they're going to do the dishes and not right. leave the yeah, uh, take care of people. Toilet seat throw up. Your, right. mm-hmm. Oh, leaving yeah. the toilet seat up. That's yeah. right. No, my yeah. wife uh, rang that habit out of me <laughs> within about fifteen minutes. Right after she threw out all my purple shirts with the long cuffs and the oh, collars and your no. love beads. If I yeah. still had those now, I could make a killing this on eBay. Yeah. Everything comes back around. The late fashion 70s, is returning. it was a black yeah. hole for fashion. Uh, the fourth trait that they're testing is negative emotionality. So this tests uh, your, your proneness to anxiety, anger, negative emotions. Emotions that probably don't serve you well. Oh, for God's sakes, what a stupid question. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, where I ha- this is where I struggled in my score. I was 46 out of 100 because I test high on anxiety. I don't test high on anger. I'm, I'm, I have, a very, as I've said to Paula many times, I have a very long fuse. And at yes. the end of the fuse, it's really bad. But other than that, I don't anger easily. But I am anxious. Yeah. I do yeah. tend to worry. I was in the low 40s on negative emotionality yeah. too over having – uh, yeah, a long fuse, and then when I blow, yeah. it's really unpleasant. Well, so we saw that around. with the pie Which debate. You've seen. No, no, no. Have we uh, have we talked about some of the the, <laughs> the times that I've seen no, Paula get really angry? Not. No, let's no. not. Can we? Should we? Should we get into some <laughs> of the time? Not. Can we see if we'll get our anger right now? No, let's <laughs> you, not. You thought you were anxious beforehand. <laughs> Wait till you start talking about that. You're gonna. No. You're gonna but, know what anxiety but, really it does is. Say, it does say here that people who. Oh, hold on, I lost it. People who score low 
on lower on um, negative oh, emotionality. Oh, you don't exactly have a, for for this if you're in like the 40s. Yeah. You don't have a propensity towards sadness, anger, and anxiety, but you aren't lacking in those tendencies either. Yeah. I think there are people who dip in and out of. Like I often say to Liam, I really dislike being alone. So you and I that score the same on this sad. one. We're both in yeah, the forties. Yeah, yeah. You like you don't like being alone I because really you, you again eleven kids. Yeah, you activity were never alone. around me yeah. means life is happening. Things yeah. are happening. If I'm suddenly alone for long periods, ooh, I yeah. don't like. You that. know what, John? No, I put I'm you not in, big on that. Either. I would, no, I would put you yeah. in the forties on this as well. Actually, yeah. are you both I don't there? remember Did you do better what than was. that, or what do you think? You know, I, here's my thing. I, I, I question whether any of these personality tests are really applicable to Bostonians. And New Englanders. <laughs> there should be a separate I mean, one. Here it is. It's January. It was just 900 million degrees below zero all weekend. Yes, right. I mean, everything's a sheet of ice. How can you be happy in that uh, How can you be agreeable? Of course everyone's pissed off true, and ornery and irascible right now. We're New Englanders. That's the way we are. Luckily, the Pats won. If they had lost, man, you forget and I do th- about it. I do think the Puritan ethic is still with yes, us too I, I think that absolutely. that anxiety and that and conscientiousness all of this comes from that I think I mean, it's still a legacy you catch us on a warm July evening on the back porch with a cold one and True. the socks on the radio yeah no more agreeable you, group you know of people you know in what's interesting every time I go on vacation to a warm place I find I am I am all of a sudden like I'm the best person ever. This is I, <laughs> I'm you're so living your best life. relaxed and awesome here. Yes, and then yeah, you're right. You come back and it's it's five degrees and you're right. like, oh, Somehow, I'm angry now. With right. that Puritan <laughs> streak, though, this morning when you walked out the door and you slid on a hard mound of icy snow, yeah. somewhere deep down, didn't you feel like we deserve this? We deserve <laughs> because, it, right? Because you because are of our sins. from that. Yes, yeah. we are repenting for something yeah. on a daily basis in this yeah. icy cold. And then the last one is extroversion. And I think we probably all would do well yeah, on this because on this is what we have to do. Um, I'm not quite as extroverted. As, I'm not as extroverted as Paula. I would guess I score lower than you. And I'm not sure with you, John. See, you get me in a cocktail party. Or, or some yeah. social setting yeah. like that, and I am Mr. Wallflower. I'm really? off in a corner. Oh, I'm, I'm shy. Yeah. I, you know, and uh, yeah, it's not a pretty sight. Luckily, so my you, wife takes over. But uh, she is, she is very extroverted. I remember the first time I met John's wife. She came up and started telling me that she wanted me to give you fashion tips. <laughs> She's, yes. she, will you talk to John about his, his well, suits I, or something? I said, honey, unfortunately, I am not 27 years old. <laughs> I cannot pull off the skinny tie thing. Skinny suits. But one thing that you say I do think is true, anecdotally speaking, don't you find uh, it's really ironic. A lot of people in media, when they're off the air, they are more introverted. They're not, you know, I think people encounter well, you, certain radio or TV personalities in person and expect them to have these larger than life interactions and they're actually well, it's like introverts. When, when we end this podcast, I don't say another word to you guys for the rest <laughs> of the day. I'm going to stay as far away from you as I can. Well, I fake it for this this hour that we're here. It's terrible. It's tough. I do it because it's the job. The minute we're out of here, you won't see me again. Well, today. you know, it also doesn't help that I... I attended a few too many rock concerts in my time without earplugs. Oh. So my hearing is not the greatest. So yeah. you get me in a crowded room That's with a hard. lot of people. Mm. Yes. And people come up and they recognize me from TV and sure. they want to talk. Yeah. 
And I'm just kind of standing there smiling, thinking, I cannot hear a single damn That's, word you are saying. And then you saying. tell them to get the hell away from you. And I'm always, then I'm anxious because I'm afraid I'm going to smile and nod. And they've just told me, my dog just got run over by a car, you know. And then, then I'm really. And then they're going to tell and everyone what a jerk he was. That John Keller. Right. I just ran into him. He smirked when I told him about, about Spot. <laughs> How dare you? How dare right. you? <laughs> right. Um, That's what you So where'd you score on extroversion, Paul? Oh, I am at, hold on, my I'm going to go, oh, okay, can dark. I say, I was just going to guess, yes. mid-80s. Yeah, no, low 70s. Which low is still a good yeah. score. High, it, it, it still is, is high in high range. Yes, yes. Um, it says, I have, I'm happy because I have a good support system, and that is certainly true. Yes, yes. I was 71, and yeah, John doesn't have his results in front of him, but about, about there. You're about there, I, 70s, I don't. It might have been mid-70s, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, so, you know, it's it's self-awareness has its limits. So what we've learned is that John is inflating his numbers. John's <laughs> applying Harvard's grade inflation to the personality right. scores. <laughs> and what we would all be told on one of these personality tests is, you should go into broadcasting. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Jonathan, did you take it this time? I did. Okay, and let's see. Let's run down. How did uh, we do? Very quickly. Did they register negative numbers? <laughs> uh, you, you might be surprised, John. No, okay. no. Hey, all right. Open. Can we go um, in, in order here? Openness to experience. 100. Jonathan Case. 100 out of 100. 100. For 100 what? out for of 100. 100 out of uh, yeah. For openness to experience. Oh, which yes. That seems I, right. You do seem like you're, you're outgoing. Totally Except if that. the experience is talking sports, you're not open. That's it. true. No, that's Agre- true. Agreeableness. 58. Okay, 58. So, yeah, yeah you're a little yeah. irascible at yeah. times. Yeah. 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 Uh, conscientiousness. Uh, I bet you're high on this. 72. Yes. Okay, so I would 72. have put you high there. Yeah. Negative emotionality. 92. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. There's you mm. need someone who can foresee bad things. We yeah. are New no, Englanders. We yeah. should only survive based yeah. on our negative yeah. emotionality. Look, if you were a caveman and you're in a cave and all of a sudden you hear breathing of some sort that you don't recognize, mm-hmm. you don't, as a caveman, go, oh, I bet that's nothing. You get the hell out of the cave right. because it's probably something that's a danger. So anxiety to some extent is a necessary evil. Well, yes. true. That is, is absolutely social, true. It's a social plus for everyone. Yes. yes. And then extroversion. How did you do there? 88. 88. Excellent. Yeah, so good. Jonathan did uh, well on this one. Mm-hmm. And um, Were you S-faced when you took this? <laughs> <laughs> so it's at 538.com. It's spelled out 538.com. If you want to go take it, let us know uh, how you did. Let us yeah. know how you did on your scores. Yeah. And you know what? Let us know what you make of what you're hearing here on mm. Studio BC. That's important to us. That's part of our extroverted uh, conscientiousness <laughs> to find out That's if right. we're if we're communicating uh, effectively with you. Give us a rating or a review. Subscribe uh, if you aren't already. Uh, all the usual places where you download podcasts. And by all means, for God's sakes, tell a friend, will you? Yeah, tell, tell a friend. friend. The least you can do. And tweet us what you think at yeah. Studio BC Pod. And I'm at Paula Evan. WBZ. I'm at Liam WBZ. And at Keller at large. And tweet loudly, because as I said, I'm hard of hearing. <laughs> and don't forget, we'll be seeing you. That one almost snuck up on me. Yeah. That's true. Uh,